Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Glad that you're here. Um, I want you to imagine with me for a minute, think about the, uh, think about the people who you ask to house sit for you when you're out of town. Think about the people who you ask to water your plants for you, maybe to take care of your dog or your cat while you're gone. Some of us don't necessarily have to do that. We don't have as many things around the house that need to be tended, but some of us do. Um, or maybe think for a minute about a time in your life where maybe you've been in a business situation and you have to ask someone to be a proxy for you, to stand in as a representative for you. Or there may be times in some of our lives where we have to ask someone or, or give someone the power of attorney for us, or they're our representative in some decision-making in our lives. Maybe if we go deeper, some deeper level, we might even think about um, who, who do we ask to take care of our kids when we go out of town? or to spend time with them when we're at work or something like that. Or, or, uh, or eventually even this deep question for those of us who are parents, like, like what about if something happens to us? Like who's going to take care of our kiddos? Like, these are all really big questions and these are all questions about stewardship, about taking care of something, about um, cultivating something or having responsibility for something. In fact, I remember, and I know I've given a lot of parenting analogies lately, so those of you who aren't parents, please forgive me because I know that I miss a lot of people with this, but, but I do remember that sobering responsibility that all of us have when we take home a child for the first time from the hospital and we go, hold up, this is up to me now? Like taking care of this kid is, is my responsibility? And unlike everything else we take home in our lives, there's no user manual for this one, right? We have to figure this thing out on our own. What am I supposed to do? I remember putting the child in the car seat and in the car and buckling her in. And those first car seats are like all these little things. You make sure everything's perfect and they're so small. And then you drive away and it's like, oh no, this is up to us now. I have responsibility. And it's an odd feeling because this is not a human being who you own, you don't own another human being, and yet you're responsible. You're a steward for them. You're a caretaker for them. It's a really big responsibility. These are some of the things and some of the ways that we are a steward in our culture and in our lives. We take care of things large and small. And when we ask someone else to take care of something for us, ideally we're saying it's as if we are there. It's as if we were the one taking care of this. That's what we want you to do with this. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28 in the message, it says, God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. So they can be responsible for the fish and the sea and the birds of the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike reflecting God's nature. He created the male and female. God blessed them, prosper, re reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. We see here from the beginning that human beings were created with a purpose to steward the world. We are caretakers of the world. We were created to reflect God's image and to be his presence in the world. That is human beings' responsibility. 
Now, some earlier translations of this passage have given us, I believe, a faulty kind of misunderstanding about our responsibility as stewards. In fact, the King James Version, when speaking of this passage and talking about humans' role, says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Now, of course, that's an appropriate translation. Uh, Have dominion is one way of talking about stewarding or having responsibility for something. When you leave your kids with someone, you do say, obey this person. (laughs) They're responsible for you. Obedience is part of it. But that's not the whole story. Dominion is not the whole role of a steward. A steward's responsibility is not primarily to dominate or to oversee or to lord over the thing that they're stewarding. No, that's a very small piece of it. We were created, human beings were created to steward the world, not to dominate the world. Stewarding is something deeper, more meaningful. It's a holistic kind of thing. It's every aspect of life. Eventually we see after sin enters the world that human beings have failed to steward that we have chosen to go our own way, and we call that in the Bible sin. But even as human beings reject their responsibility as caretakers, as stewards, as cultivators, even as human beings go off track, God doesn't give up on human beings as stewards. He still goes after us. In fact, the Bible then tells us that God calls a specific family to take over his stewardship project hasn't abandoned humanity. He, takes, he chooses a specific family, the people of Israel, to be his stewards in, a, in the world. So Jesus takes this large-scale stewardship project, steward the entire world, steward everywhere. And after the fall, what he does is he restarts that project with one family and one specific land. This people and this land would become a microcosm and a signpost of what God has always desired to do for the whole world, that his glory would be shown everywhere. Bring it under his lordship, his healing, and his restoration. So Israel becomes this microcosm, this signpost, this kind of small place where God's kingdom comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is God's desire for the whole world. Stewardship, therefore, is at the heart of the Christian story. We are caretakers. We cultivate, we tend, we make space for things to grow. That is the Christian responsibility. So for the Christian, the concept of stewardship will be behind everything that we do. We cultivate and care for the world. We cultivate and care for our neighborhoods, for our businesses, for our family, for our art. We cultivate, we create, this is what we do. Many of you know that um, this week there is a large international climate strike going on, specifically focusing on the work of youth climate activists. Now, I know that anytime we talk about things that bump against the political that there's always a little bit of, okay, what are we doing here? Where are we supposed to go here? Um, and I know many faithful Christians who respond to the reality of climate change in different ways and different faithful ways. Um, we look at the data. We look at the fact that it seems like our earth is cooking in some way right now. That's something not to laugh at. I'm sorry. But I, I know some who say, okay, well, the, really the goal is that The government needs to take immediate, large-scale action. That's one response that I hear from Christians. 
I know others who say, well, the best way forward is for people to respond with individual actions. It will motivate the market and corporations to change. That's kind of the best way to do it, okay? I think both of those are fine um, ways to talk about this. But, and then there's every kind of response in between. But regardless of the appropriate response of action, because we talk a lot about the how and specifically how do we do this, but if we get behind that and we look at the what is going on and the why, I think things like this climate strike are signs that as human beings, we fundamentally understand something. There's something that we understand and, and it is that we understand that we've been poor stewards on some level that our actions have affected the world in a profound way. We have often acted in our lives more like tyrants than like caretakers, right? We've not walked with care and concern. We have walked in selfish kinds of ways. When metaphors switch from cultivation, we take our responsibility as cultivators, to domination, we have a problem. And this is true in any area of our life. If you switch in your mindset from I am a cultivator, I am a caretaker, to I am a dominator, it messes things up. We go off track. We tend to think in our lives because of sin, we, we tend to think that people are to be coerced, not to be nurtured. We tend to think that neighborhoods are places that are supposed to be good for me and safe for me, and that's it. We tend to think that business is about squeezing every last drop of profit rather than providing a helpful service. And we tend to think that the earth is something to be used rather than to be tended. We seek our own desires and fulfillments. Even with our spouse and our children, we seek after our own desires and our own fulfillment rather than seeking their highest good. We do this so often because we're broken people. This is the reality into which Jeremiah speaks. That dark passage that um, Ian read a little bit ago, this reality of Jeremiah emoting. He says, I wish I could just cry and cry and cry and cry. He's devastated. Is there even heal, a healing balm in Gilead, he says. Is there even healing anywhere? Is there any hope? Is there even a physician there? Israel and mankind as a whole has lost our role as healers, as cultivators, as those who bless, Jeremiah is saying. Is God even there in Israel anymore? This is because his image bearers, God's image bearers, God's stewards have turned elsewhere. The question in Jeremiah is, why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? In other words, they've looked to other things to define them instead of to me. They've forgotten their vocation, they've forgotten their identity, and they've looked other places. So we have a stewardship problem. We have an identity problem. Because of sin, we've forgotten who we are. That's the reality of Jeremiah. Now that's not the end of the story. Thank God. <laughs> the parable of the shrewd manager that we read is, um, be completely honest, and I read this several places, that parable that we read in Luke's gospel is um, perhaps the most difficult of all of Jesus's parables to interpret. Now, as a preacher, sometimes I feel like I say that every time we say a parable, <laughs> but this one, it seems like that's legit, like that 
that this is a really hard one to understand. Like, what is this passage talking about? So we begin with a manager, a shrewd manager, not an assistant to the regional manager, a manager. Come on, guys. I, I crafted that one. I put that one together this week. It's funny, as my dad was reading, I asked my dad to read my sermon this week. He asked me to read his, and I asked him to read mine. It's kind of a sweet thing we have going back and forth. And, and, uh, and so I knew that he wouldn't understand that reference at all, and he would say some. So I put in parentheses on the text that I hear, joke, reference to the office, right? So anyway, that's what my sermon says right now. So we have this manager, and his job is to steward the estate of the rich man. So he takes care. He's a caretaker for the rich man. And he heard, the, the owner, the rich man, heard that the manager is squandering his estate. So his estate is in disrepair. It's not working rightly. So the master says, show me your books. What are you doing here? What is going wrong with my estate? So this manager then kind of freaks out. He's like, okay, what should I do? He's gonna fire me. I'm not gonna be the steward anymore. And then he starts panicking and he goes, I'm not strong enough to dig holes, so I can't do that. I am too ashamed to beg, so I can't do that. What am I gonna do with my job? What is gonna happen to me? So he hatches this plan. He's gonna start knocking down the debt that is owed to the master. So he's gonna go to all the people that owe the master money or stuff, and he's gonna say, okay, you don't owe him quite as much. You owe him less than that. Um, why? Well, the purpose he gives for this is if the master fires me, which he's going to, I'm going to have friends <laughs> who will welcome me in. Okay, that's the reason that he gives. So one by one, he begins to ask the debtors, how much do you owe? They give him a number and he knocks it down. How much do you owe? I owe this many jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down, make it less than that. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? I own all this wheat. I owe all this wheat. He said to him, take your bill, knock it down, make it less than that. Scholars tell us that what the manager is most likely doing is he's taking away the interest that is owed, okay? So these people not only owe a lot, but there's a lot of interest that's accrued over time. So he's knocking down and saying, let's get back to the principal. Let's get back to the capital here and not the interest that you owe. And he takes away all of the interest. Well, you would think that the master wouldn't be thrilled about this, okay? Like they owe me all this stuff and then you're saying that they shouldn't pay me back everything that they owe me? But in a stunning turn of events, the master commends the manager for his action. Go, what? The message translation describes why the master praised the shrewd manager. It says, streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. Listen, Jesus says, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on your good behavior. So what's going on here? Well, at first, we tend to think that this passage is about money, that it's a stewardship parable. This is something about taking care of money. But if you take it as practical advice, it gets really weird, okay? So think about this for a second. So am I supposed to be shrewd with my money then? Like sneaky? 
Am I supposed to look out for what's good for myself and save my own job and make sure I have like a lot of friends using money? Am I supposed to look out only for number one and not for my employer? Am I supposed to be cheating my boss in order to make a sale? Is that what this passage is saying? No, no. It comes into a little better perspective when you think of Israel as the manager. Okay, think about this. This family that God has given responsibility to care for the world, Israel is the manager. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had been telling people that in order to really enter into the kingdom of God, they had to do a bunch of extra things. There were a bunch of things that they had to do on top of just embracing who God was and how God was moving, and they had to add all of these cultural things on top of it. So it wasn't simply about loving God and giving your life to him. There's a bunch of extra stuff. There's cultural stuff. There's stuff about hand washing and ritual purity. There's stuff about the right people to hang out with and the wrong people to hang out with. And what this was intended to do is the Pharisees were trying to keep spiritual debtors in debt and make a firm line between insiders and outsiders. If you are so spiritually in debt to God because you haven't done this and you haven't done this and you haven't done this, then you're gonna always be far away from him. But we, the insiders, will always be close. And here Jesus comes along and he's hanging around with all the wrong people, all the spiritual debtors. He's neglecting all the Sabbath practices at that time, neglecting them because he's healing on the Sabbath, because he better understood the purpose of the Sabbath than the Pharisees did. He is coming in and liberating people and healing them and setting them free. He's going to spiritual debtors and he's saying, you are not deep in debt anymore. He's saying, you have been set free. Jesus is saying to Israel, you need to let go of the interest that you've charged these people because it's driving people away from you and away from the kingdom of God rather than driving people towards you and towards the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that the master, God, has called his manager. He's called Israel. (laughs) Judgment is coming for the stewards. In fact, he's warning the Pharisees all along, you thought the people who were most in trouble in judgment were the debtors, the people who owed. But you're the one that stewarded the whole thing. You're the one that has been called to bless the world, to care and to cultivate and to tend the world. And here you are charging all of this interest and separating insiders from outsiders. I tell you, Jesus is saying, judgment is coming for you because you're the caretakers. Jesus is the embodiment here of the shrewd manager, throwing caution to the wind and simply loving those who had been seen as hopelessly indebted. Jesus shows Israel and humankind who we were always called to be. Called to bless and to love the world. And he leads us back into it. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That there's not all this extra cultural stuff, all this extra cultural baggage that you have to do to be part of the kingdom of God. God calls us simply to surrender our life and to trust in him. The call of the kingdom of God requires full surrender of oneself, but not more than that. 
hear this. Kingdom of God requires full surrender of everything that you are, but not more than that. You are not hopelessly indebted. God only asks for us to surrender to his kingship. The tax collectors and sinners were not good in and of themselves. And unlike the Pharisees, though, they knew that about themselves. They knew that they were lost. They knew that they were far away. They knew that they had messed up. And the Pharisees had been blinded to their own sin. The tax collectors and the sinners simply looked to Jesus. Now, there's another wrinkle to this. The the Pharisees also believed that they were protecting Israel's sacred land, okay? So they didn't want to lose the land. That was their goal. After all, God had given us this land. It's the promised land. It's called that for a reason. God has given us this. But in Jesus, God was doing a new thing. The whole purpose of their ancestral land was a signpost, a microcosm of what God wanted to do for the whole world. But God's goal the whole time has been the whole world, not just this ancestral land, right? It was a signpost of that. So in Christ, the borders of the kingdom of God are now advancing, beyond just Israel to the whole world. So the land that they're guarding is no longer the end all. And when it's no longer the end all and they're not following Jesus as the kingdom of God is bursting forward, that land can itself become an idol. If we become so obsessed with protecting that thing that we can't see God's broader plan, then that becomes an idol for us. So the Pharisees continued to hold on to their protection of the land and it had become an idol for them blinders which kept them from seeing God's kingdom at work in Jesus. Another way to think about this is the Jewish leaders remembered that they were God's blessed people, that they were part of the God club, that they were loved by God. They remembered that part, but they forgot that they were called into that in order to bless the world. They forgot the second part of that. So they're sitting over here going, we are part of the God club. We're part of the insiders. We are loved and blessed by God. And they forgot the whole reason they were called to that in the first place. And this is what the commands in verses 10 to 13 refer to. The wealth of the land had become their idol. So the passage says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't idolize your wealth, your ancestral land. We can say for us that that's anything else in our lives. We can't idolize that and say that that is the end all, trying to protect that at all costs and follow God as he heals and restores the world. The two aren't going to work. How does that work practically for us? So think about this. If you are one of those people, if I am one of those people who has dollar signs in my eyes because I'm just pursuing money at all costs, and that's everything that I do, then my life and my driving and my focus is going to be on obtaining more and more of that, which means that I'm going to ignore your needs. I'm going to ignore the needs of my neighborhood. I'm going to ignore the needs of my world. So the whole self-sacrificial love of God doesn't happen in my life because I'm obsessed with this money. It's the same thing with like fame or attractiveness. If I'm obsessed with what other people think about me and I just get, want people to like me and so I'm building my image and my repertoire, nothing that I do is going to be genuinely self-serving. 
I mean, serving others. <laughs> Nothing I do is going to be genuinely serving others. Because if I try to serve you, the main reason for that is I'm going to keep up my image. I can't serve both God and money. I can't serve both God and wealth. I can't serve both God and whatever it is. God is healing and restoring the world, and he's calling us into this deeper way of living. Our passage in 1 Timothy calls for supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And it says, be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. The early church found themselves under an oppressive Roman regime. And they're kind of stuck with, what do we do with this? Most of our neighbors believe that the empire actually is God. The Roman empire is God and the emperor is a God. So what they do is they offer sacrifices to that God and they worship that God. Well, we're Christians, so we can't do that. So what else are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to curse the emperor? We're supposed to call down fire from heaven and maybe even declare war on the emperor? Well, no, that doesn't seem in the way of Jesus either. So, so most Christians kind of stand on one side of the, or the other. I think we see this a little bit in our world today. So many of you may know Christians who treat the president of the United States as if it is a Christian role, <laughs> uh, that it is, that person is a representative of the Christian faith and therefore also the hope of the world or at least part of the hope of the world. Some Christians tend to do that, unfortunately. Still others on the other side are ready to call down fire, <laughs> to pray a curse upon the president and on our leaders, right? But mainstream Christianity has always said our responsibility first and foremost is to pray. Our hope doesn't rest in our leaders. That's the first responsibility. Instead, we should pray that our leaders, like all of us, might turn to God for salvation and seek to be stewards who lead into the reckless and loving way in which God calls us. And it's not just for leaders. Notice we're to pray for everything this passage says. Why? Because prayer forms us. Prayer becomes a rubric for how we live. There's an old um, passage that has been um, uh, used in the monasteries, and I'm gonna butcher the Latin, but basically it means that how you pray shapes how you live. That how you pray, the formation of your prayer, shapes how you're going to live in the world. There are times in the prayers of the people when we say something and I go, wow, I forgot to pray for that. <laughs> I forgot about that part of our world that's struggling right now. I forgot about that need in our community. I, I forgot to pray for the church and its mission. I think that's one that we forget a lot. We pray for the needs of our world and we pray for our own needs. We go, I'm supposed to pray for the church and its unity and its mission. Whoa. I don't often think to pray for every area of life, but that's what we're called to. Lately, whenever we see an atrocity committed, public figures will come out and the standard is to offer prayers for the victims or thoughts and prayers for the victims. It's become a ritual. So tragedy occurs, people offer thoughts and prayers. And it has become in vogue lately to criticize the thoughts and prayers, right? So, and I understand that, I get it. Uh, because if, and the, the reason why it's been so criticized is if the only thing we ever offer is thoughts and prayers, 
If we're not willing to get our hands dirty, if we're not willing to step into the muck of life, then it's difficult. And I think it asks us the question, if all we do is pray and we're not willing to act, are we actually praying? Because praying will always drive us to action, right? But hear me, the answer is not to stop praying, (laughs) okay? Prayers are not the beginning and the end, but they certainly must be at the beginning and at the end. Prayers have to be part of it. Why? When tragedy strikes, I hope that I respond by praying first. Because if I don't turn to prayer, I don't have anything to offer because I'm not the one that runs the world. I am bankrupt. I don't know how to respond. And it is prayer that leads us to right living and leads us to meaningful action from the proper perspective because I am not the hope of the world. Christ is the hope of the world. So I think a helpful prayer that I often pray in this is the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Let me so love. I used to think it was, let me so love, like let me like love in a big way, but it's let me so love like a plant, right? Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. It goes on to say, oh, divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I think about that. Like, Lord, help me to be a steward of the world in the way that you've created me to be. Lord, help us to be a people who sow love and goodness and self-giving and kindness in the world. Let us be people of peace, not of discord in this broken world. Let us be who you have called us to be is our prayer. Here's what I hope we hear today. Just a few things for us to ponder this week. First of all, I hope we remember, number one, that God wants to bless and heal the whole world. God's first and last words are love to us. God loves the world. That's why he created the world. It was an overflow of his love. God will see the world through because of his love. God doesn't give up on us because of his love. So God wants to bless and heal the whole world. They hear that first thing. Second, out of God's great love, he has created us in his image and invites us to steward his good world. Out of God's great love, he created us in his image and invites us to steward his good world. Remember that you are created in the image of God and every person that you meet is created in the image of God. Your being in the world is a reflection of God's desire for the whole world to know and experience him. That's who we're created to be. Third, remember that we are constantly tempted to turn from cultivation to domination. You will constantly be tempted in your life to turn from being a caretaker, a steward, one who cultivates the world, to someone who dominates and seeks only our self-fulfillment out of the world. We're constantly, constantly tempted by that. And it happens in subtle ways. It's not that all of a sudden we turn into a tyrant or a dictator. It's through little decisions we go, oh, I'd rather have my way than that way. I'd rather go this and find my need met here 
than here. This is, our true, this is true in our relationship with the planet, of course, as we talked about. But as our parable shows, it's true in our relationship to other people. Jewish theologian Martin Buber said that there are three ways that we understand our relationship to others. Three ways, okay? I, it, us, them, or I, you. Three different ways to think about these. First of all is the I, it relationship. The I-it relationship is not really a relationship. It destroys relationship. It's objectification. If I consider myself I and I consider you it, that's objectification. It depersonalizes the person. The other person is simply something to be used and for me to do with as I like. So think about it. If you treat somebody like an it, you don't listen to an it, do you? You don't really empathize with an it. You treat them as an object to be used. I tell it what I want, right? So that's the first way of engaging with the world is this I-it relationship. The second is us-them, us-them. This is where the world is divided in two, the children of light and the children of darkness. There are good guys and there are bad guys. This gives me someone to blame for all the problems in the world. I know we don't hear this ever in our world today, but sometimes we tend to go, it's all their fault. That other group that has a different ideology from me, it's all of them, right? It's us versus them. The problem is always because of them. When you have an us-them perspective, complexities vanish, don't they? Just blame them. Blame is the game. Demagogues are drawn to us-them characterizations. If you ever heard somebody demagoguery in their speech, they talk in terms of us and them. So we have I, it, we have us, them, and then I, you. I, you is the basic word in an accurately lived life. Buber says, I, you can be spoken only with one's whole being. The concentration and fusion into a whole being can never be accomplished by me and can never be accomplished without me. I require a you to become. Becoming I, I say you. All life is actual encounter with someone else. I, you says we're in this together. We need each other. I'm not gonna treat you like an object and I'm not gonna treat you like an other. I'm going to say to get through this life and to be who God has called us to be, we have to link arms together and figure this out and move forward. So that third thing is we are constant, or that, yes, we're constantly tempted to turn from cultivation to domination. We're constantly tempted to go from I, you to I, it, or us, them. And then the fourth thing, Jesus leads us as the one true and faithful steward. He shows us what it means to be open-handed and open-hearted. So even in our broken state, God didn't give up on us. He shows us a better way. He leads us into that better way. And we are called once again to be redeemed as stewards, as image bearers. And then the final thing, the fifth thing, in Christ, our identity is redeemed and we are led into the better way. So as Jesus has shown us the way, he has redeemed our identity and led us into a better way. So that's my hope for this week. 
My hope is that we would understand our responsibility as stewards. It's not something we take lightly. It's not something that we say we have the full capacity to be God's steward in the world. We need Christ led by the Holy Spirit. And yet he's called us into a different vocation, into a different identity, not as dominators, but as cultivators and as stewards. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, we thank you for um, creating us out of the overflow of your love. We thank you that your first and last words to us are love. That even when we've rejected that love or we've chosen to go a different path, we've chosen a different vocation than who you've called us to be, that you didn't give up on us. You stepped into our world and you show us a better way. Jesus, thank you that you are the one true and faithful steward that as we've missed the mark, Lord, that you show us a better path. You remind us of who we've been called to be. So today we surrender our lives to you. We thank you that none of us are hopelessly indebted, that you've called us into your grace, that you've called us into your kingdom. And Lord, help us to see each person with whom we interact as people where your kingdom is already at work and we get to be part of cultivating and stewarding that reality. Help us to walk with lenses of stewards, caretakers, not dominators in all that we do. We trust you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.